This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of June 14th. Uh, we have Savannah Guthrie guest hosting uh, with champions winnings and the consolation prizes matched by Jeopardy with a donation to the Bowery mission. And uh, I thought Savannah Guthrie did a pretty good job so yeah, far. Yeah, I thought, I, I thought she did fine. Uh, I'm not as impressed as some of the other guest hosts. Yeah, a little more like chit chatty about some of the some of the clues yeah it's like you know what we don't need personal connections yeah there's more personal connections and fewer it feels to me like fewer kind of trivia connections Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i could be mistaken but yeah it felt like it felt like she's making a lot of personal connections which like hey that's our job (laughs) Um, yeah you back off So, on Monday, June 14th, we have the contestants Caitlin Hackett, a radiologist from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Jonathan Udoff, a business intelligence analyst from San Diego, California, and Katie Sikelski, a graphic designer from Kent, Ohio, whose one-day cash winnings total $7,999. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, That's Heavy Man, Bodies of Water, The main liquor, a messy category, playtime is over, and mobituaries with Mo Rocca. I love Mo Rocca. Yeah. He was on The Daily Show a long time ago. Mmm, yes. Did he, he used to be on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me a lot too, right? He did. He did used to be on. Mm hmm. If I remember correctly, Katie got us off to a very strategic start. In the main liquor, the clue there was in a Highland fling. That's at the $200 level. Uh, and she rang in with what is whiskey and then paused mm-hmm. to see if she needed to be more specific and then uh, went on to scotch whiskey. Mm-hmm. That's always wise. It's good to stay general-ish. Yeah, if it, if it, won't, if it won't be wrong, mm-hmm. you know, give yourself a wider, wider shot there. Yep. We learned about the neighborhood play, if you've never heard it, and playtime is over. I really like that category. I ended up getting them all correct, which made me feel good for a sports category. But they were all about uh, particular uh, plays or fouls or things in sports that uh, were no longer allowed, or at least weren't for a while. Uh, The $400 level, an MLB rule change eliminated the neighborhood play. Fielders now have to touch this base to record an out there. Uh, Kitty guessed what's first base. No, you have to touch first base to, to get an out. But that's second base. It used to be if you were, if you were trying to turn a double play or something, the second baseman or whoever was covering second base had to catch the ball in the neighborhood of the base. Mm. Like they didn't actually have to touch the base. They had to just be near enough to it to be considered in the neighborhood before throwing it to first to, to make the double play. But that got, it got to a point where it was kind of ridiculous of like, you know, they're multiple feet away from the base and they're, you know, they're calling people out. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Some of those Mo Rocca clues, one in particular, I thought was 
there were about twice as many routes in or clues as they mm-hmm. needed right at the 400 dollar level right yeah. audrey hepburn suffered hunger and loss as a teen in nazi occupied netherlands and felt a special bond with this girl born in the same year the girl's diary evoked such painful wartime memories that hepburn declined to play her on film even at the request of the girl's father and they had a picture yeah that's who is anne frank right mm-hmm. like there are three, I feel like there are three entirely separate, appropriate $400 clues to get you to Anne Frank worked it worked yeah. in there, right? Like, it could just be the picture and who's this, you know? It could be either of the things about Audrey Hepburn. Yep. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, good for Jonathan. But I'm sure they were all trying to ring in on that one, because... Yeah, it, hopefully, hopefully we all knew that, yeah. Yeah. We get Daily Double number one in the Bodies of Water category at the $600 level. Jonathan finds it. He's at $2,600. Katie's at negative $200. And Caitlin is at $600. And he wagers $2,000. Gets the clue. Accessible only by ferry, Vashon Island is in this body of water between Seattle and Tacoma. And he gets it right with what is Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Katie is... Out of the hole at 2,800. Jonathan is way ahead at 8,200. And Caitlin is at 1,200. And we get the Double Jeopardy category City Fill-In, Asian Literature and Drama, Timelines, UN Anniversaries, Musical Sequels, and Ends in GH. There were some things this week that I feel like I've talked about very recently on a number of episodes. One of them, in the musical sequels category, the Mm $2,000 level, of the icing was such a big hit for these brothers, George and Ira, that they came up with Let Him Eat Cake, which bombed. Uh, That's that's George and Ira Gershwin. I asked a question about them. Yes, indeed. Just this last week. Like last week. Yeah. And uh, this isn't on Jeopardy, but in Learned League, we had a question uh, referring to uh, the Irish word for potato from the the Great Hunger. (laughs) Yes. I would have been embarrassed if I missed that one. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it I, threw me for a minute, and then I was like, "Wait, Irish! Look at that! It's like yeah. it's me- it like it was meant to be." Mm-hmm. Also, in that musical sequels category, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this, but "Bye Bye Birdie, Birdie" is the worst musical of all time. I and have, I just want to state that unequivocally. I have not seen it, and I think my main reference point for it is the episode of Mad Men. Where it's like the popularity of Bye Bye Birdie is kind of a plot point. Mm. The second Daily Double is the 19th pick at the $1,200 level of Asian literature and drama. Katie finds this one. And at this point, she has staged quite a recovery. She's at 10800 to Jonathan's 11000 and Caitlin's 7200 She wagers 2000 of it and gets the clue... This acclaimed 1950 multi-perspective film is based on two Japanese short stories. She tries What is the Magnificent Seven, but they are looking for Rashomon. Yeah. I haven't seen that one, but it's uh, kind of, I I know of it as kind of an an iconic early multi-perspective film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also haven't seen it, but same. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the Timelines category. It's at the $1,600 level, pick number 24. Uh, And Caitlin finds this one. So each of them found one, which is just nice. Uh, She's at $8,400, Katie's at $8,800, Jonathan's at $9,400, and she wagers $1,500. 
And she gets the clue, this book of the Bible mentions a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And she uh, she thinks on it for a bit, and she gets it right with what is Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good job, Caitlin. Yeah. I always forget where that comes from. Yeah. I always want to go to 1 Corinthians or whatever, but I, that's the mm-hmm. love is patient or whatever. Yes. Yeah. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Jonathan has regained the lead with 10,200. But it is the slimmest of leads. Caitlin is at 9,900. Katie's at 9,600. So they're all within $600 of each other. Uh, They get the final Jeopardy category, 19th century America. And the clue, two-word term for the statement saying U.S. policy is to leave the parties to themselves in the hope other powers will do the same. Katie tries what is global isolationism. That is not correct. Um, she's wagered 901. That drops her to $8,699. Caitlin tries what is laissez-faire. Also not correct. She has wagered 9,601. I, uh, I think that she got her math a little mixed up here. That is Jonathan's optimal wager, which is something that you would calculate from second place before going on to calculate your optimal wager. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We see that error a lot. Anybody could, that's that's an easy one to make. And her optimal wager is going to be, not far from that, right? Um, but with the with the numbers this close, getting your arithmetic exactly correct can make a real difference. Uh, in this case, it doesn't make a real difference. She was going to need to cover Katie's all in, and in any case, she drops to two hundred ninety nine dollars. Mm-hmm. I guess it may have made a difference in whether she landed in second or third place. And Jonathan responds, "What is hands off?" And he's wagered ninety six oh one. Uh, which brings him down to 599. And so Katie is our two-day champion with a two-day total of 16,698. Yeah, from from two Final Jeopardy triple stumpers mm-hmm. coming in not in the lead. Yes, uh, it's a weird confluence of events. The answer they were looking for here was the Monroe Doctrine, which... I remember that it's a thing that exists. Oh, yeah. Um, It was Monroe's statement that the United States will basically be in charge of the Americas and Europe will take care of Europe. Basically, the the statement that you will not meddle in the affairs of the Americas, we will. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, that's a little bit... Yeah, that's a little bit more like uh, uh, cynical... Of it yeah. than, than really his statement was. His was that, like, European powers should leave American the, the Americas to determine for themselves. Yeah. And we'll stay out of your business. Mm-hmm. That's, that's ringing a bell now that, now that you say it. So that brings us to Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Aaron Ryan, a director of clinical services from Napanock, New York. Quan Do, a catalyst development engineer originally from Annandale, Virginia, and Katie Sikelski, a graphic designer from Kent, Ohio, whose two-day cash winnings are now $16,698. We've got the Jeopardy categories, Face the Performer. 
Decades in American History, Nautical Words and Phrases, Jumble Jim, I Have to Give You Credit, and Having a Positive Altitude. I thought the Jumble Jim category was very enjoyable, if a little mm. easy. But that was that was um, anagrams of exercise-related words. Right. Period of reduced intensity toward the end of a workout is owl condo, for example. That's cool down. Mm-hmm. Katie had a rough break at the $800 level there. Um, the clue was a muscle at the back of the thigh. Thin grams. She tried what are hamstrings, but hamstrings has two S's. Yep. Uh, so it had to be hamstring, singular, and Quan got the rebound on that one. Yep, indeed. We have one of my favorite lines. I, I get to reference Parks and Recreation again, but that's because Yay. it's a clue. Uh, in Face the Performer, the $1,000 level. They showed a picture. It says, on Parks and Rec, this actress told Amy Poehler, you can trust me because I don't care enough about you to lie. And that is Catherine Hahn. That's mm-hmm. Jen Barkley. So good. Daily Double number one is at the $1,000 level of I Have to Give You Credit, and it is the 23rd pick. Katie finds this one. She has 4400 at this point, to Quan's 2,400 and Aaron's 2,600, and she wagers 2,000 of it and gets the clue. In 1950, the, the inaugural charge of this first universal credit card fittingly paid for a meal in New York City. And she knows that is Diners Club. Diners Club as the first credit card is a trivia thing to know. Yes. That comes up a lot. Yep. Yep, it does. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Katie is in the lead with 7,400. Quan and Aaron are tied at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. The stage, home sweet animal home, pop culture tidbits. They're um, sparing you from a potpourri or right. hodgepodge, <laughs> Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely definitions. Five nights and at Freddy's. That's a, a video game series, which I, I feel like would miss a lot of the audience there. Five Nights at Freddy's. Yes, I uh, I had to Google it mm. to know what the reference was. I was sort of tickled at an incorrect answer in pop culture tidbits. Uh, the clue was the French film Les Traducteurs was inspired by the real-life efforts to translate this novelist's Inferno into many languages. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, of course, responded, who is Dante, right? right. Like, because you're, you're taking your Jeopardy brain, and you're like, this clue is asking, who wrote the Inferno? Inferno, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who wrote Inferno? Uh, they were looking for Dan Brown. Dan Brown was the correct response here. Of course they were. Uh, Yeah. If your Jeopardy brain has had a moment to say, oh, wait, this is pop culture tidbits, probably then you'd be like, oh, well, it's about the French film because film is pop culture. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) No. No, talking about Dan Brown. Yeah, I had that same thought. Dante wasn't a novelist. What are they talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Daily double number two is in the stage category. It's at the $1,600 level. Erin locates it. She is at 7,200. Katie's at 8,200. And Quan is at 3,600. And she wagers a modest 2,000. 
It's pick number 16. The clue is, in this Albie play, Martha's husband George is an associate professor of history. Uh, she gets that correct with what is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm-hmm. If you know one Albie play, I would say it should be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yep. Agreed. And Daily Double number three is in the At Freddy's category at the $1,600 level. It's the 24th pick, and Katie finds this one. She has 9,000 to Aaron's 9,200 and Quan's 6,000. She wagers only 1,000 and gets the clue. Frederick the Wise, ruler of Saxony, protected this controversial reformer at Fortburg Castle in 1521. And she correctly responds, who is Luther? You can see the I could have, I should have wagered more face mm-hmm. there. We know, we know that one along with the yep. I should have wagered less face. Mm-hmm. Um, and also shouldn't, I don't know, <laughs> should have expected a harder clue at a $1,600 yeah. level yes. double jeopardy. Like, <laughs> yeah, part of that face is like, I'm sorry, this is the $1,600 clue. Yeah, really. So uh, at the end of the double jeopardy round, Katie is at 11,600 in the lead. Aaron is at 9,600, and Quan is at 3,600. We get the final Jeopardy category, American Women. And the clue, during her second marriage, she split time among homes in New York, New Jersey, Paris, and Greece, and a yacht. And this one I could see, I know people quibbled with, and I, I don't blame them on this one in particular. Everyone got it. Quan wrote, who is Jackie Kennedy Onassis, and wagered $600. Uh, Aaron wrote, who is Jacqueline Kennedy, and wagered nothing. And Katie also got, who is Jackie Kennedy, and made a cover bet of 7601. Yeah, this clue, like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we know that, like, that's who you're talking about. But, like, it could be any, any possible American woman who got married a second time and Mm -hmm. spent time, like, it could be a lot of people... Could be Theoretically. like who is my stepmom, you know? Right, and like, exactly. I mean, not not mine, but right, like anyone who in her second marriage spent uh, time in these places, time in those locations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. So yeah. Anyway, uh, Katie wins with nineteen thousand two hundred one, and apparently, when she was like pre-game Michael Jordan visualizing herself winning, she drew a picture of herself. Winning a game with 19,201 as the winning score. Nice. Cosmic. Yeah. So on Wednesday, June 16th, we have the contestants Sarah Reza, a museum program manager from Hyattsville, Maryland, Evan Williams, an associate broker from North Hollywood, California, and Katie Sikelski, a graphic designer from Kent, Ohio, whose three day cash winnings total 35,000. 899. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Fox and Friends. That is Fox like Guy Fox. Scientists, Odd State Facts, Not Quite Stupid Answers, The Comics, and In the Middle with two D's in quotation marks. Uh, the letters DD will be found in the exact middle of each correct response. That Guy Fox category was a prime example of the writers intending you to go from top to bottom. Yes. For instance, the $400 clue, the second row down, says, 
the conspirators planned their attack for the annual event called the opening of this institution. And if you just jump to that clue, you'd be like, what the, what conspirators? What are you talking about? How There's no context for this other than like Fox, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you needed to have the $200 clue in 1605 Guy Fox and Friends. Tried to make some noise in what's now known as this plot. Katie got it. That's a gunpowder plot. And all mm-hmm. the others are like, it seemed like purposely ambiguous as to what the like, what plot they're talking about. You know, it seemed to be that way anyway. Yeah, it, I think it would be it would be difficult to jump in. Uh, on any of these as the first clue except for that 200 but hey you know we got we got a a summary of the gunpowder plot Mm -hmm. in five clues that's right yeah we learned that kentucky has almost twice as many barrels of bourbon as residents uh the way it should be yeah i really liked the not quite stupid answers category in, in a stupid answers category, the correct response usually will be in the clue somewhere or kind of uh, seem self-evident once you're, once you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. These were a little off from yeah. that. For example, they had a picture of a guy in the clue, this scientist's will provided the funds that established the Smithsonian Institution. His crypt is here in the Smithsonian Castle, and the institution he endowed has grown around him, exceeding anything he could have envisioned. Uh, it was a video clue. That's why it's so verbose. Mm-hmm. Um, so the answer there is not Smithsonian. That would be a stupid answer. Smithson yep. is the answer. So it was, it was that kind of thing where like, it was very close to wording that could be found in the clue itself. Right. Daily Devil number one is pick number three very early. It's in the scientist category. Evan finds it. He's at 400, Katie's at 200, Sarah's at negative 200, uh, and he wagers 1,000. Uh, and he gets the clue, this man's original temperature scale had zero as the boiling point. Linnaeus made a more intuitive thermometer with zero as freezing. And he gets it right with, who is Celsius. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Katie is at 5,200 in the lead uh, uh, over Evan and Sarah, who are tied at 4,000. And you get the Double Jeopardy categories, Dear Diary, Country Name Origins, Desert Island Reads, Tough Vocabulary, Twins and Triplets, and Pop Music, which was about pop music about dad Mm -hmm. in some way. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. These are, many of these are not very positive mm, no. pop music no uh, not particularly fathers yeah not not the way i'd want to be mm-hmm. cats in the cradle in particular well no yeah. a lot of them yeah yeah not great for dads yeah. mm-hmm. we had a a funny coincidence leading into daily double number two mm-hmm. um in the dear diary category at the $1,600 level, we had the clue, with one's face in the wind, you were almost burned with a shower of fire drops, he wrote on September 2, 1666. Katie rang in and said, who is Defoe? That is incorrect. It turns into a triple stumper. They were looking for Samuel Pepys. And then a few clues later, uh, pick number 14, we find daily double number two. 
in the Desert Island Reads category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Katie finds it. She has 8,800 to Sarah's 7,600 and Evan's 4,400. She wagers 3,000 of it and gets the clue. The term Robinsonade refers to a castaway story that emulates the 18th century works of this man. And this time, the correct answer is Defoe. And she gets it. And uh, chuckles about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had to stop and be like, I'm pretty sure it's Defoe, but is that just because she said that name before? Yeah. Like, but it was. Mm-hmm. The third Daily Double is only two picks later, number 16. Uh, Evan finds it. It's in the country name origins uh, category at the $1,200 level. He is at 5,200, Katie is up at 11,800, and Sarah's at 7,600, and he wagers 4,000. I like, I like the, I like the large bet. I kind of think you might as well bet it all if you're going to bet that much of your Mm -hmm. stack. Yeah. Recovering, recovering from dropping to 1,200 beyond this point. It would be possible, but. But unlikely. So you might as well maximize your winnings if you're going to get it right. Mm -hmm. Um, he gets the clue. In Central America, thought to be from the name of a local leader and the Spanish word for water. And he isn't able to get there. He guesses what is Panama, but they are looking for Nicaragua. Really, really, Agua was the big, mm-hmm. big pointer there for me. Yeah, same. So he's able to recover some. And at the end of the double Jeopardy round, we have... Katie in the lead with 16,600. Uh, Sarah in second place with 11,200. Evans at 4,800. And we get the final Jeopardy category movie characters. And the clue a character who was going to be called Lunar Larry became him, inspired by the name of a real person. Evan has correctly responded, who is Buzz Lightyear. He's wagered everything. That brings him up to 9,600. Sarah also has the correct response with who is Buzz Lightyear. Uh, She's wagered 1601, bringing her up to 12,801. I'm not sure. Because if she got it wrong, she would drop down to 96. It would drop her one dollar below. below. So it must have meant that. So I think she meant to do fifteen ninety nine, not sixteen oh one. Yeah. Right. Yes. You're right. Yes. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because she does get it right. So she's at twelve thousand eight hundred one. And Katie has written who Osmosis (laughs) Jones. Jones. Who is is that a joke? Is that am I supposed to know? Does or, nobody no, remember Osmosis oh, Jones? Does Osmosis nobody remember Jones. that movie? I did not remember that movie. Osmosis Jones. Yeah. Bill Murray is the real life person. And uh Chris Rock. Oh, Lawrence Chris Fishburne. Rock. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Chris David Rock. David Hyde Pierce. Yeah. Brandy Norwood. <laughs> yes. Better known by her mononym Brandy. Uh and Will Sh- William Shatner? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Alongside Bill Murray, Mon- Molly Shannon, and Chris Elliott. Yeah, it was a it was a star studded cast. I did not remember Osmosis Jones. I was like, "Is that I? I don't know what's going on with her answer here." But that sounds humorous. Um, all right, well, 
now I know what we're watching at our next family movie night. Uh, um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's worth watching once, I would say, to know. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's really fun. All right. Osmosis Jones. Uh, so Katie remembers who Osmosis Jones is, although I did not. Uh, she's wagered 5801. Which drops her to 10,799 uh, into second place. And that means that Sarah is our new Jeopardy champion. Yep. And so on Thursday, we have the contestants Matt Walton, a civil servant from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Emily White, a public relations specialist from Wilmington, Delaware. And Sarah Reza, a museum program manager from Hyattsville, Maryland. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, North American Geography, Potpourri, again, Music Class with C in quotation marks, Plain Train or Automobile, The Language of Food, and TV Before and After. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't give an explanation on the Plain Train or Automobile category. So when we got the, the first clue in that category, the $200 clue, it's simply... TV's kit. And Sarah rang in and said, like, paused and was like, what is, uh, automobile? And Savannah did not respond. So she's like, uh, then, then Knight Rider? Um, <laughs> Savannah Guthrie then clarified automobile was, was correct. Uh, so they were able to figure out the gist of the category. Like, you tell whether it's a plane, train, or automobile. Mm-hmm. One in three shot on those, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. it, with if you have no knowledge or context, right. which they did because they got all of them in on the first on the first uh, response. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things in this round that I enjoyed. Uh, one is the six hundred dollar level of potpourri. The country of Tuvalu gets nearly ten percent of its gross national income licensing this internet domain extension. That was a triple stumper. That's dot TV. Mm hmm. So if you want something.tv, you're paying Tuvalu for it. That's right. I somehow have started using the expression full of beans all of, all the time. Uh, and I don't even know how I came to know this idiom. And people around me think I'm making it up. But there it is at the $600 level of the language of food. If you're full of these, you're energetic. Now spill them. Uh, and Sarah, Sarah got that one. So Sarah knew it too. Sarah knows that full of beans means energetic. Yeah. Uh, I often use it with reference to my dog. Like when she's, when she's racing up and down the store, the stairs, I'm like, if the dog is full of beans, somebody needs to walk her. Um, <laughs> the dog is full of beans. <laughs> Daily double number one is at the $800 level of music class. As a reminder, she is in quotation marks. It's the 14th pick. Emily finds it. And at this point, she's at 3,000. Sarah's at 1,000. Matt's at 400. She wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. Joan Sutherland was one of these sopranos who decorated her arias with a rainbow of musical hues. Uh, She gets that one correct. That is a coloratura soprano. Yeah. Emily seemed to know a bit about music more than Mm -hmm. uh, just like... Oh, she ran this category. Yeah. I did not realize that because they did it a bit out of order. And also um, there was an incorrect guess at the $1,000 level before she got the rebound. Yeah. Yeah. But she she seemed knowledgeable. 
Um, mm-hmm. And also quick on the buzzer. Uh, yeah, that that thousand dollar level though uh, connection to Jeopardy. Uh, the clue is a male alto voice is also known as this twelve letter word. Matt guessed what is contralto, but that's a female uh, voice. Uh, mm-hmm. Emily got it with what is a countertenor, and a multi game winner in season thirty five, Doug Dodson. Mm. Is a countertenor. Yes. I don't know how many people will remember Doug. But I remember Doug. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily's at 7,600, Matt is at 2,800, and Sarah's at 2,600, and we get the double Jeopardy categories Medical Latin, Even Numbers, Tomfoolery, Not an Everyday Word Anymore, Did You Read, and The Terms of Service. <laughs> No, Nobody of read course the not. terms of service. <laughs> of course not. They are designed to not be read. Right. Yeah. Um, Tom Foolery was all movies and television shows where an actor named Tom is involved in some kind of deception. Yep. Or trickery. Which is, seems like a very narrow and specific category, but then they came up with, with five pretty good ones, I thought. Well, varied. Got. Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Tom Hiddleston, Tommy Lee Jones. I missed one. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Do I know who Tom Hardy is? I'm sure I know his face. Well, if you if you know his face, I was going to say he played Bane in oh, Batman, okay, yeah. but mm-hmm. his face was kind of obscured in that role. Yeah. He's done a lot of things. I think he's also Venom. Is that Tom Hardy? I think so. Hmm. I guess my only knowledge of him is superhero movies. Yeah. Oh, we had another uh, Learned League connection uh, in Medical Latin at the $1,600 level. OD can stand for an overdose or for this Mm -hmm. body part, Oculus Dexter in Latin. Matt tried, what's the left eye? That is incorrect. That would be Oculus Sinister. Yes. Um, Emily got the rebound. It's the right eye. Dexter is right. Sinister is left. The association between, like, the left side and like evil is very old and problematic for people who are left-handed. Dexter is the right side, but also like is associated with like upright and mm-hmm. you know, like sort of dexterous. Uh, and yes, we get daily double number two in the medical Latin category, uh, just below that two thousand dollar level. Pick number nine. Uh, Emily finds this one uh, as well. She's at 11,200, Sarah's at 4,200, Matt's at 4,000, and uh, she goes big. She wagers 5,000. She gets the clue, 18th century physician William Hibberdine noted a chest condition of strangling and anxiety and gave it this Latin name. And I don't know if she was guessing, uh, but she got it correct with what is angina. Mm-hmm. Dilly double number three comes in at the 19th pick at the $1,200 level of Did You Read? Sarah finds it. She's at $9,400 uh, to Emily's $16,600 and Matt's $4,000. She wagers $3,000. Uh, more modest, but trying to kind of improve her positioning mm-hmm. without taking too big of a risk there. Uh, she gets the clue, this book, by Mark Bowden. chronicling a savage firefight in Somalia in 1993. And she correctly responds, Black Hawk Down. Yep. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, 
Sarah is at 13,200. Emily is at 20,600. Matt is at 7,600. Some good scores, higher scores than we've seen through this week. And we get the final Jeopardy category, countries of the world, which could just be countries. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and the clue on this country's national day, August 15th. All 39,000 residents are invited to Vaduz Castle for festivities and drinks. Uh, Matt wrote, what is Monaco? But I believe Monaco is simply Monaco. Monaco, Monaco. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and he bet all of it, so he drops down to zero. That is incorrect. Sarah got it correct with what is Liechtenstein? And she wagered 10,000, which put her up to 23,200. She was pretty far behind Emily anyway, so I don't. I think that's a fine bet. Emily also got it correct with what is Liechtenstein spelled correctly, and uh, she wagered eight thousand, which is a bit more than a cover bet, but uh, it got her up to twenty-eight thousand six hundred, and she is the winner. So on Friday, June eighteenth, we have the contestants Elaine Philadelpho a data researcher from Washington, D.C., Trenton Woodley, a law student and freelance politico from Memphis, Tennessee, and Emily White, a public relations specialist from Wilmington, Delaware, whose one-day cash winnings total $28,600. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories, six characters in search of their novel, stock, markets, uh, that is, there's a there's a colon there between stock and markets. This turned out to be the stock symbols uh, or stock related information about grocery stores. Cinema puri, uh, just to bother Kyle. Scavengers assemble. <laughs> uh, age and before beauty. Uh, the correct responses here will come shortly before the word beauty in the dictionary. Yeah, how many more puris can we get? It's going to be like American States puri and mm -hmm. fact puri before and after puri. <laughs> yep. They could have just called it cinema. Yeah. And doesn't doesn't the puri part of potpourri mean putrid? Oh. Cuz potpourri is putrid pot. So really, when you tag it onto all these things, it really should be about putrid cinema. Yeah, or you're putrid right. whatever. Mm-hmm. So... Are they expressing their opinions about... About trivia uh, in general? <laughs> about Rocky and the, the work of Cecil B. DeMille? Mm-hmm. Uh... Oh, the African yeah, no. queen for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything with Catherine Hepburn... Okay, um, but, like, who can have anything against Edith Head? I am going to say nobody. Yeah. Because I did Wait. not know who that was. Oh, you didn't know. Okay, well, now you do. Edith Head also uh, notably is the inspiration for uh, Edna Mode in uh, The Incredibles. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now yeah. then, absolutely, 100%. Uh, there is only one costume designer that you need to know as a trivia person, and Edith Head is Edith that Head. individual. Edith yes. Head. Well, I mean, I'm going to picture Edna Mode, and I'll have mm -hmm. to be like, okay, what was her actual name? Yep. Edith Head. Okay. <laughs> Got it. 
six characters in search of their novel, I thought was like a, a kind of a wacky category title. You know, mm-hmm. it was one character per clue, except for the very top one, which had two characters. Uh, Catherine and Isabella Linton, they're from Wuthering Heights. Your favorite book. Trenton st- struggled a little with the $400 clue there, but he got there eventually. Uh, the clue was Percy Jackson in his first novel. Trenton said, what is Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the lightning thief? Uh, and the lightning thief is the answer they were looking for, and he got himself around to it eventually. So that was good enough. Right. Because none of, like, all of that is kind of in the title, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not, not the title. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read Dracula? I have not read Dracula. It's very good. That's a six hundred dollar level. Yeah, I should I should do that. I also have been uh, eyeing this themed hotel a couple hours from my house that has these very very elaborate cottages like that were designed and built from scratch around themes. And there's a there's like a vampire Dracula themed mm. cottage. I'm like, that would be the perfect place for like a movie marathon or like picking a like a great horror novel and just like, you know, sort of die. Yeah. Nice. Uh, There was a a triple stumper in the age category at the 17th pick. The $400 level. The clue is one of the oldest living organisms. The Pando of Utah is a grove of quaking these trees. Emily Gustwater Elms, uh, that's aspens, quaking aspens. If you hear the term quaking with a tree, it's going to be with the aspen. And yes, aspen groves are single organisms. Their roots are interconnected. Huh. And yeah, they're fascinating, fascinating trees. That's we have lots cool. of aspens in Colorado. Hmm. We also have a city called Aspen. Yes, I was just thinking it seems appropriate that you have mm-hmm. lots of aspens. Yeah. The Daily Double is a couple picks earlier. It's in that same category, the age category, at the $800 level. Uh, Emily finds it. She is at $2,600. Trenton is at $800. And Elaine is at $1,400. She bets it all. Right move. She gets the clue thanks to a 1386 treaty signed by Richard II and Zhao I, England's oldest ally, is this country. And she gets it correct with what is Portugal. I know it's pronounced kind of like the name Joe, but I can't. It's not actually like Joe. It's like Joe, but I can't. Yeah, I have I can't a hard time it. with Portuguese pronunciations. Yeah, me too. I have a tough time with a lot of pronunciations, but. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily is in the lead at 7,400. Trenton is up to 3,400, and Elaine is at 3,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories A Spendy Little War, A Tale of Two Georges, <laughs> Biblical Art, Cloth and Fabric, Drama Series Writing Emmys, and Giving Consonant Attention. So they give the consonants and a definition, and you figure out the word. I was surprised that nobody was able to get the $1,200 level. The clue there was VR, French term describing the overall life work of a writer. That's one we talk about a lot on Jeopardy. That is oeuvre. That, that one that uh, Alex Trebek would mm-hmm. so uh, dramatically exaggerate. Yeah, he'd lean uh, on it pretty hard. everyone's great delight. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I my brain goes to repertoire for that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, oh, yeah. And it's like, no, wait, there's a V, and it's not, yeah, so. Yeah. I, I never go to that word. That's not a word that I normally use. Yeah. 
Trenton had sort of a struggle in the early part of this round. Um, he got the second clue, which was a $400 clue. And then he tried for and missed a $2,000 clue at the sixth pick. He didn't get in again until the 12th pick, where he tried for and missed uh, the $400 level of cloth and fabric. He tried for and missed the $800 in the same category. Tried and missed the $1,200 in a spendy little war as the 15th pick. Mm -hmm. And finally, at the 17th pick, he turned it around and got the $2,000 level of a spendy little war. But he just, like, it was like, you could see him being like, I've got to get back in there. I've got to turn this around. Right. You know, and going for clues that were not his wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. But uh, he did he did turn it around at the 17th pick. And then at the 20th pick, he found uh, Daily Double number two at the $1,600 level of A Tale of Two Georgias. At this point, he had um, made it out of the red and up to 1800 Emily was at 13,400. Elaine was at 13,000. He made it a true daily double as well he should and got the clue. Georgia's capital, Atlanta, is a sister city to this national capital of Georgia. And like without a moment's hesitation, he responded, what is, how, how do you say it? Tbilisi. Yeah, I think, I think that's how it is. I always struggle with it. Tbilisi. Yeah, he seemed much more comfortable with the pronunciation than... I am. I will tell mm -hmm. you that much. Um, yeah. Tbilisi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so good for him. And I think this was like, just not his board. That, right. that fabric, that fabric category. Mm -hmm. Oof. That, that just, he kept getting walloped there. <laughs> I mean, I would have too. <laughs> I mean, I guess it wasn't, it, it wasn't just like all like name this fabric, name this fabric. They, there were clues, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Daily double number three is pick number 29. Emily finds it. Uh, she's at 13,800. Trenton is up to 6,800. And Elaine is at 16,200. And she bets 5,000. I like the move. I like you the know what? gutsy wager. I don't. Although, and I, okay. I will tell you why. Elaine's at 16,200. And Trenton's down at 6,800. And there is one $2,000 clue left on the board. Mm -hmm. So if... Emily misses, she's going to be at 8,800. And then if Elaine gets that $2,000 clue, or if Emily attempts it and misses, she's handing Elaine a lock game. Sure. So we're, we're looking at a, like a high prob, like a, like a, you know, a fairly high probability that if she misses, Elaine's going to end up with a lock game. And given that, I would say like go smaller or go all the way in. Also, like you have to make your wager like really on the spot. Immediately. I just, yeah, I think that I think it puts her like right on the bubble of dropping out of contention. That's not a position I would want to be in with one clue left on the board. I get that. Maybe four thousand. Yeah, I think four thousand is um is is a is a wager that I would uh, feel more comfortable with. I don't know if I said this. It's in the biblical art category. I don't think I don't you think did. I, I interrupted did. you. Yeah, that's okay. She gets the clue, stolen in Israel in 1996, this Russian-born artist's Jacob's Ladder was recovered in 2015 and sold at auction in 2020. And she says, I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, and that is the Russian-born Jewish artist, mm -hmm. Mark Chagall. 
Yes. We've we've talked about Mark Chagall on the podcast about we have, yes. knowing that particular thing. Any kind of clue that someone is Jewish, right? Israel, like a, an Old Testament story plus Russian artist, like Chagall is the answer. And mm-hmm. his name sounds French, so that always throws me off, it used to throw me off for a second cuz like mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, he sounds like he should be a French painter, but yeah, no that's always going to be Chagall. Yep. Emily does get the follow-up, the 2000 with the Eche Homo. Mm-hmm. Uh, behold the man. Yes. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Elaine is in the lead with 16,200. Emily's at 10,800. Trenton is at 6,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, fiction, and the clue. In a 1915 story by this European, a woman finds a corpse and says, it's gone and croaked, just lying there, dead as a doornail. Trenton has not come up with anything. He just has who is question mark. And he's wagered 3,201. Looks like he was just trying to get above 10,000. So that drops him down to 3,599. Emily has responded, who is Kafka? Uh, That is correct. Her wager is 10,700. That makes strategic sense here mm-hmm. uh, because Elaine only has to wager 5,400. We're expecting, yeah, Elaine could drop below Emily, but by a dollar. Um, and then when you think about third place, you don't want to get overtaken. So, All right. um, yeah. Betting bit is big is fine there. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings her up to 21,500. And Elaine has responded, who is Agatha Christie? It's not a bad response uh, in terms of, you know, finding a corpse, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yep. uh, I see where she was where she was going with that. Jeopardy would probably not refer to Agatha Christie as this European. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I see where I see what she sort of keyed into to get to that. Um, she's wagered 5401 as we expected, which drops her to 10,799. And that means that with 21,500 Emily is our winner, so we'll see her next week. Mm-hmm. So this is our mid-episode break, where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, real talk, there's not a whole lot of recent content on there, um, but it does help us with the podcast expenses. And so uh, if you like us and want to help us keep not losing money on this, you can go over and check it out, throw us a few dollars a month. Um, And there's a little bit of stuff on there. There's some outtakes. There's um, us taking a Jeopardy test and talking about it. We've got our uh, goat coverage from when that tournament happened. So yeah, go check it out if you're interested. And uh, if you don't have financial resources to uh, throw our way, you can, of course, leave us ratings or reviews or um, some lovely folks have been uh, tweeting about enjoying the podcast. We really, really love that. Um, It helps to kind of spread the word about what we're doing so that people who might be interested can check us out. So um, Nicole, I see you were tweeting Mm. at and about us. We appreciate you. So yeah, if you, if you are in circles where people are into Jeopardy, you know, feel free to follow suit and just, you know, mention you've been listening to the podcast. And, uh, of course, our world is still not great. It's still important to find ways to connect, ways to support financially or with your 
time uh, or with your voice, um, a couple of places that we like to recommend to find ways to get started are blacklivesmatter.com and communityjusticeexchange.org. Go check those out if you're looking for ways to be involved and make a difference. Yeah. So, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I most certainly do. My first guess is the guy whose name I already forgot is Bo Brummel. Oh, I thought about that, but no, I did not choose Bo Brummel. Okay. The next one is about another guy who I don't think I'd ever heard of, and that's Samuel Peeps or Peppis or whatever. <laughs> no, we are not talking about Samuel Peeps. Okay. Uh, my last guess is the monkey's paw. Ooh, that would be a good one. Um, but no, that is not it either. Um, you are in the right category with Samuel Peeps, I believe. So yeah, we are in the Dear Diary category where we had Samuel Peeps at the $1,600 level. At the $2,000 level, we had a picture, and the clue was she's seen here in the 1960s when her decades of diaries, including her affair with Henry Miller, became a literary sen sensation. Nobody attempted that one. It is Anais Nin. And that was a name that I'd heard, but I knew nothing mm -hmm. about her. Nothing. Just nothing. Except that her name had come up a bunch of times. So I figured I'd look into her and find out what her deal was and uh, tell you, and then we would know. Sounds good. All right. So Anais Nin, uh, her, her full name is Angela Anais Juana Antolino Rosa Edelmira Nin y Culmel. She was born February 21st, 1903 in Neuilly, France, and she lived until January 14th, 1977. She was a French-Cuban-American diarist, essayist, novelist, and writer of short stories and erotica, and sort of just a member of kind of the, like, the literary scene in France and the United States. She was born in 1903 to Joaquin Nin, a Cuban pianist and composer of Catalan descent, and Rosa Cumel, a classically trained Cuban singer of French descent. And she spent her childhood and early life in Europe. Uh, her father abandoned the family, uh, Anais and her two brothers, uh, Torvald and Joaquin, early in her life. I found different information about when exactly. I saw that her parents separated when she was two years old, um, but other sources seem to suggest that uh, he was involved in their lives until she was older a little bit. Um, their mother raised them initially in Barcelona, um, but in 1914, when Anais was, was 11, they set sail for America. On board the ship, she wrote a letter to try to lure her father back to the family. The letter was never sent, but it was the beginning of her diary keeping. Uh, her, her practice of keeping a diary started with these letters that she wrote and continued throughout her life. Hmm. Anais would drop out of high school in 1919 at the age of 16 after uh, continuing her education in America for a few years. And later began working as an artist's model to help support the family. 
After being in the United States for several years, um, she forgot how to speak Spanish, but she retained her French uh, and became fluent in English as well. So French and English were her main languages. On March 3rd, 1923, uh, she married her first husband, Hugh Parker Geiler. Uh, he was a banker and artist. Uh, he was later known as Ian Hugo in his artistic capacity. He, was, um, he made experimental films in the late 1940s. Uh, the couple moved to Paris the next year, where Geiler pursued his banking career, and Nin began to pursue her interest in writing. In her diaries, she also mentions having trained as a flamenco dancer in Paris in the mid to late 1920s. And in 1932, uh, she published her first work, which is not especially in line with her later works. It was a uh, critical evaluation of D.H. Lawrence called D.H. Lawrence, An Unprofessional Study. And apparently she wrote it in 16 days. Wow. Yeah. Anais Nin became prof profoundly interested in psychoanalysis. She started studying it and I think undergoing psychoanalysis with, uh, with Rene Allendi in 1932. Um, and then with Otto Rank, uh, who was kind of a, you know, noted influential kind of person who had, was kind of in the, like in the Freudian kind of school, if I understand correctly. In both relationships, uh, the, the men eventually became her lovers, um, which is covered in her in her diaries as well. In 1931, she met the writer Henry Miller, who was at the time nearly destitute, as well as, as his wife, June. Uh, she was very taken with his writing, and she paid his rent and his living expenses for the next 10 years so that he could write, uh, during which time he published uh, Tropic of Cancer um, and became kind of a literary darling of the avant-garde. This was the beginning of a fulfilling period of Nin's life, uh, creatively and personally. She was sort of very involved in artistic society and was kind of a bohemian trying to free herself from the confining rules of society. She and Henry Miller both were apparently pretty obsessed with his wife, June, and also she had an affair with him. Hmm. Yeah. In the late summer of 1939, um, when residents from overseas were urged to leave France due to the approaching war, Anais Nin left Paris and returned to New York City with her husband. There she struggled to publish her highly stylized fiction, while also juggling numerous relationships, um, including a friendship with Gore Vidal. After many frustrations in the publishing world, she purchased a printing press to print her own books. Her husband contributed artwork to her books under the name Ian Hugo. During the 1940s, Anais Nin, Henry Miller, and some of their friends began to write erotic and pornographic narratives for an anonymous collector who offered to pay them a dollar a page and wanted to make sure that there was no poetry in there. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, she never intended the work to be published, but she changed her mind decades later in the early 1970s um, and allowed this work to be printed posthumously, you know, g gave permission that it that it could be published. The two works that were published not long after her death were Delta of Venus and Little Birds. In 2016, a previously undiscovered collection of erotica, I think from around the same period, called Oletris or something like that was published for the first time. Anais Nin's most studied works are her diaries, uh, which she began writing in her adolescence. The published journals 
the first round of published journals uh, span several de- decades from 1933 onward and provide a deeply explorative insight into her personal life and relationships. Uh, she was acquainted often quite intimately with a number of prominent authors, artists, psychoanalysts, and other public figures, and wrote of them often. Um, and as a female author describing primarily male constellation of celebrities, her journals have acquired importance as a perspective into those circles and that society at the time. In 1947, Anais Nin met a young man named Rupert Pohl and fell in love with him. He was 16 years younger than her, um, and the two embarked on a secret relationship, all while Nin recorded her experiences and feelings in her diary in great detail. The two married in 1955, although Anais was still married to her first husband, uh, Hugh Geiler. Geiler remained in New York City and was apparently unaware of Nin's second marriage until after her death in 1977, although Nin's biographer Deirdre Baer alleges that Geiler knew what was happening when she was with her other husband in California, but chose not to know. Hmm. Uh, During these intense years, Nin wrote a series of continuous novels that fictionalized her experiences ultimately published as kind of a cycle under the title Cities of the Interior. In the 1960s, she was living a dual life in New York and Los Angeles and made the risky decision to allow her diary to be published, although she removed most of the private details of her romantic relationships. She did the editing herself. I think she also worked with an editor, but like she, you know, she she redacted <laughs> that uh, her diaries and, you know, for 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 publication. Um mm. Uh, the first installment was published in 1966 and titled The Diary of Anais Nin, and it was an immediate success. Uh, seven volumes were published over the course of 1966 to 1974, and Nin found herself in her 60s and 70s uh, playing the part of an international feminist icon. Uh, mm-hmm. The success of her diaries also generated interest in her earlier self-published works. Her literary contribution was a subject of controversy in her lifetime and remained so after her death. Many critics admired her unique expression of femininity, femininity, her lyrical style, and her psychological insight. Some, however, dismissed her concern with her own fulfillment as self-indulgent and narcissistic. In 1966, Nin had her marriage with Pohl annulled due to legal issues arising from both Geiler and Pohl trying to claim her as a dependent on their federal tax returns. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that she was the financial powerhouse of both relationships, but I'm not totally sure. Uh, yeah, like what? <laughs> Man, the patriarchy. So uh, she had her marriage with uh, with Pohl annulled. But they continued to live together as if they were married up until her death in 1977. Okay. While Anais Nin traveled the world speaking about her writing and meeting fans, subsequent volumes of her edited diary were published, covering the period up through the end of her life. In 1974, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, um, battled it for several years as it metastasized, underwent numerous surgeries, radiation, and chemotherapy. She died of the cancer at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, 
on January 14th, 1977, with Rupert Pohl by her side. Hmm. There's a bunch of posthumous stuff here. So we're 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 through her life, but we're not through kind of the the deep dive. Her, um, her so, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before she died, it was her decision to have her early diaries published, as well as erotica she'd written in the 1940s. And uh, one thing that I encountered, although I don't have notes on it now, uh, suggested that this had to do with kind of providing for her husbands um, after her death. So as a result of this decision, uh, Delta of Venus, Little Birds, and her childhood diary titled Linote were, were released, as well as three volumes of the early diary of Anais Nin. Also, in a decision that generated a great deal of controversy, she asked Rupert Pohl to publish the secret parts of her previously wow. released diaries. So the first unexpurgated diary, as it was called, is titled Henry and June. And that one includes the material that was removed from her first published diary regarding her affair with Henry Miller. And that one was uh, that one was adapted into a feature film. Um, yeah, I thought that sounded familiar. Yeah. And that was followed by other unexpurgated diaries, um, Incest, Fire, Nearer the Moon, Mirages and trapeze. Incest, I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear, was especially controversial. Controversial, and uh, sparked conflict between Rupert Pohl, who was sort of uh, helming the publication of it, and Anais Nin's surviving brother Joaquin, um, because that unexpurgated diary details her father's sexual abuse of her at the age of nine, as well as the incestuous affair that she had with him when she was 30. Um, yeah. So that one was uh, controversial, volatile. Yeah. I thought it might be helpful for me to just sort of read off her bibliography uh, so that trivia folks, you know, so that you've heard these titles and, and have them uh, linked to her name. So we have all of her journals and letters are under various uh, permutations of like diary of Anais Nin. All of her journals and letters are uh, under various sort of versions of the title, the diary of Anais Nin. Uh, so the early diary of Anais Nin is four volumes published after her death, but you know, from the years 1914 to 31. There's the seven volumes, the diary of Anais Nin that she edited herself. Um, and then the unexpurgated ones, we have Henry and June, Incest, Fire, Nearer the Moon, Mirages and Trapeze. Uh, we also have Letters, A Literate Passion, Letters of Anais Nin and Henry Miller. Her novels include uh, House of Incest from 1936. It has the word incest in the title, but apparently that was a metaphor in that case. Okay. Uh, maybe a metaphor that was powerful for her for reasons that were at the time known only to her. It's a 72-page surrealist novella about, like, trying to escape from a dream. Winter of Artifice is a collection of three novelettes, as she calls them. Um, I mentioned the Cities of the Interior kind of cycle of novels. Uh, those novels are Ladders to Fire, Children of the Albatross, The Four-Chambered Heart, A Spy in the House of Love, and Seduction of the Minotaur, uh, which was originally published as Solar Bark. 
And those are all kind of semi-autobiographical, if I understand correctly. Uh, and then Collages was uh, a novel she published in 1964. So yeah, we've talked about her erotica collections, Delta of Venus, Little Birds, and Auletris. Uh Waste of Timelessness and Other Early Stories was a collection of short stories published, published posthumously. And I think I mentioned Under a Glass Bell in 1944. It was short stories that were published during her life. And then uh, she has a couple of nonfiction works, D.H. Lawrence, an unprofessional study I've mentioned. Uh, in 1968, she published a nonfiction work called The Novel of the Future, which is about the creative pro process. And uh, in 1976, some of her essays were collected into a volume titled In Favor of the Sensitive Man. <laughs> her reputation unraveled after her death, which is not too surprising given, you know, sort of that she allowed a lot of controversial stuff to be published. Yeah. Af posthumously. There's an, a great article about it in The Guardian um, by Jude Doyle, uh, writing at the time under the byline Sadie Doyle. In that article, we read, it began with a mistake in her obituary. One tiny loose string that when pulled unraveled Nin's entire persona. In the New York Times, she was listed as being survived by her husband, Hugh Geiler. In the Los Angeles Times, she was listed as being survived by her husband, Rupert Pohl. <laughs> After her death, Nin was variously portrayed as a spoiled, upper-crust adulteress who used her husband's money to keep dozens of lovers dependent. Uh, that was part of what was going on with Henry Miller back in the 30s. Oh. A liar whose published diary is more like a very convincing novel than anything approaching autobiography. A bigamist who married Pohl while still married to Geiler and spent the last half of her life deceiving both men. A pornographer whose only worthwhile work is the erotica she wrote for a dollar a page. A madwoman who had a consensual affair with her own father. In 1995, biographer Deirdre Baer published an account of Nin's life, which was thorough, accurate, detailed, and extraordinarily harsh. Um, and many defenders of Nin credit this biography with destroying her reputation. One memorable review headline referred to Anais Nin as a monster of self-centeredness whose artistic pretensions now seem grotesque. <laughs> so in the decades after her death, her, her reputation kind of fell apart. But 26 years after uh, the publication of this biography, her legacy is recovering in part because we've sort of forgotten who she is. Yeah. Excerpts from her diaries are very Instagrammable. Um, <laughs> they are great quotes. You'll see them all over the place. We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are is one that's going around a lot. Um, but there's lots of stuff like that. I think that if I had had to guess before this who Anais Nin was, I think I might have been like a philosopher, a poet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny because in her life, uh, Anais Nin expressed a wish for what she called a cafe in space where she could keep in touch with others across distance. And so in some ways, uh, it's the cafe in space that has kind of rehabilitated her. Hmm. So that is Anais Nin. She's a fascinating figure. I had no idea. Yeah. I don't know that I'd ever heard her name before. I probably had, but yeah, I had, I had no reference point at all. So this is very good. Yeah. 
I really I like when when Jeopardy brings something or someone to my attention and I discover that there's like this whole like part of like our cultural history that I just didn't know about and like she connects into so much. Anyway, are you ready for a quiz? Oh uh, yeah. All right. So this is just it, it, I had I didn't do anything cutesy with the theme. This is just a quiz about people and things connected to Anais Nin's life. Okay. Anais Nin's first published work, as we've discussed, was a study of D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence himself was the author of some controversial work, including which novel, which was banned for obscenity in the U.S. in 1929? Oh my god. If it helps, the titular character's name is Oliver Mellers. Yeah, I... I always mix up who's who, but I'm going to guess Lady Chatterley's lover. That is correct. Okay. Oh, I, I never feel confident with that. Yeah, that's why I wanted to give you like, you know, it has a titular character and like, I can even tell you his name because like the because title doesn't. Because that's not the title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, because um, like which D.H. Lawrence novel is like especially controversial felt a little little too much of a deep cut. Yeah, so so Lady Chatterley lo- Chatterley's lover lo- blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Lady Chatterley's lover is correct. Apparently, an authorized and heavily censored abridgment was published in the U.S. in 1932. Hmm. Lady Chatterley's lover was censored or banned in many countries, um, and in 1960, when the full and unexpurgated edition was published in Britain by Penguin Books. Um, it led to a very um, important influential trial under the Obscene Publications Act of 1959. Lady Chatterley's lover was found by the jury to have literary merit uh, and therefore be permissible, which led to um, a sort of a liberal reading of the act and decreased restriction in publishing. Hmm. Yeah. All right, so 10 points. All right, question two. The 1990 film Henry and June, which was based on Nin's unexpurgated diary, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. It is one of three films rated NC-17 to have ever been nominated for an Oscar. Name either of the other two. Ooh, NC-17 trying to remember if certain things were rated were just rated R or if they were actually like NC-17. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, worth noting also there are there are things that uh have been kind of like recut for like a DVD re-release mm-hmm. or whatever and mm-hmm. like the recut is rated NC-17. I'm not talking about those these are ones that were like released in the theater with an NC-17 rating. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Itu Mama Tambien. That's not a bad guess. The two here are Wild at Heart and Requiem for a Dream. Requiem um, for a Dream was NC-17? Apparently, yes. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was. I believe it was released with an NC-17 and then surrendered it and like edited. Yeah, originally rated NC-17. Aronofsky appealed the rating. The appeal was denied. An R-rated version was later released on video. 
Um, ah. Yeah. So if you if you saw it on video, then you saw an R-rated version. But the version that was nominated for an Oscar was NC-17, which now feels a little a little trickier than I meant than I meant to go. Yeah, that's fine. I, yeah. Uh, I, I would I would never have really gone there anyway. Yeah. The NC-17 rating was brand new in 1990, um, and that is the year that Henry and June and Wild at Heart were released. Hmm. Uh, Requiem for a Dream was 2000. Anais Nin's erotica co- collection Little Birds has recently been adapted for television and recently made its U.S. premiere on the Stars Channel, like very recently, like two weeks ago today. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, the series is set in what Moroccan city for which a certain citrus fruit is named? Uh, well, the uh, citrus fruit. Is that a citrus fruit? I guess that's a citrus fruit. Oh, yeah, of course it is. I'm thinking of a different one. Uh, I would think that's tangiers. Yes, that is correct. The source of the word tangerine. Mm -hmm. I was like, is that a citrus fruit? Then I realized I was thinking of a nectarine. Nectarine, yes. (laughs) Not the same. I I knew exactly what was going on as you, like, (laughs) as, as you, like, shared your little bit of thought process of like he's thinking of a nectarine yeah. <laughs> um, all right you're at 20 points and here's question four in morning song this artist sings the lyrics and you can be henry miller and i'll be anais nin except this time it'll be even better we'll stay together in the end come on darling let's go back to bed who dreams of being Anais Nin to her lover's Henry Miller on her 1995 album, Pieces of You? I have no idea. Uh, I should know this. Oh, I'm shocked that it's not like an instigate for you. It's okay. You're a couple years younger than me. Pieces of You. Mm-hmm. God. I, I truly don't know. Uh, Cheryl Crow. You know, like you're in the right family. Um, it's Jewel. Jewel. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. Sorry, I thought that was a gimme. So now I feel like this quiz is too it hard. Is, it is um, not. A, no, 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 no. It's fine. All right. So yeah, that that's Jewel. Pieces of You was apparently uh, reissued or re-released uh, recently. Um, and so she did an interview about it in 2020 where uh, the interviewer asked her about what she read as a kid. And she replied, and I'm skeptical about like whether what what she means by as a kid here. She says, I was reading a lot of Greek philosophy and I started getting into the poets then too. Plato's allegory of the cave, Socrates, Pablo Neruda, Bukowski, Anais Nin, and Nabokov's short stories. Um, so like, ho- hopefully we're like a little later in her like not officially an adult years because like... Yeah. That's that, that's some stuff to be reading. Yeah. If we're talking about actual childhood. All right. You're at 20 points. And here's question five. In 1972, Anais Nin was interviewed on Chicago's WFMT by what American author, historian, actor, and broadcaster? This interviewer is especially noted for his oral history works, including Working, Hard Times, and The Good War, this last one for which he won the 1985 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Oh my god, this is all stuff that I'm like, I'm pretty sure I know this and I can't remember it. Because I know Hard Times. I 
I don't know. I don't think I'm yeah. going to get there. All right. Uh, Studs Turkle. Studs Turkle. Yeah. Studs Turkle, I, I knew from his from knowing of his books, uh, but apparently he had this well-known radio program called the Studs Turkle Program, uh, which ran, it was a one-hour program. It was an interview show that ran every weekday from 1952 to 1997. Wow. Interviewing all kinds of kind of public figures. So, yeah, he interviewed her in 1972. Wow. All right. I wrote this quiz a lot harder than I meant to. So you're at 20 points. And uh, we're going to call our final category Other Notable Anaises. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know of any other notable Anaises. I'm not going to ask you to produce a name, just so that you know. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, I'll do 15. All right, 15. So for 35, here is your question. There aren't many famous people named Anais, but another one has been prominent recently in the theater world. Singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell wrote the music, lyrics, and book of what Tony-winning musical, which is based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. If it's a recent one, what's well, the only Tony-winning musical that I know of that could fit it? I think that's Hades Town. That is Hades Town. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and Hades Town. Like, listen to the music, you and the listeners. If you haven't, it's it's a great listen. Yeah, started as like I think a concept album or whatever. Um, yeah, Hades Town was nominated for fourteen Tonys in twenty nineteen, and won eight, uh, including nice. best musical and best original score. Um, all right, well, you are finishing with thirty five points, despite a quiz that was like really geared to my areas of expertise. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Kyle, for, for making a podcast with me. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. They might be into it. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables one Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We will be back, actually, not next week. Next week, we're going to take a week off. It's about that time of year. We're going to take a vacation. Uh, So we'll be back in two weeks. We will recap that week. Uh, It means we will miss a week of Savannah Guthrie's episodes. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we'll be back in a couple weeks uh, with more Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.